What's up guys, I'm Sam Matler and this is the EDM podcast episode 9 and episode 9, this episode is going to be a little bit different, Uh, Levi unfortunately can't join me, during our normal recording time he was a bit under the weather, Uh, so to fill in the gap before episode 10, which is with Charlie McCarran of Composer Quest, go check out that podcast if you're interested, I'll leave a link. Uh, before episode 10 I wanted to fill it in with a well uh, I was going to say brief but it probably won't be a question and answer episode where I answer your questions and as many of you already know I posted a request both in the EDM Prod Facebook group and on the EDM Prod Facebook page asking for your questions and I got quite a few uh, so that's what I'm going to be doing in this episode. Now, some of these are easy to answer. Some of them take a little bit more explanation. I am winging it completely. So if I ramble a bit, uh, you're just going to have to deal with that. I haven't got any notes down, uh, but hopefully you get some value out of this episode. So without further ado, I'm going to get into these questions. Uh, Some people have asked more than one question, which is fine. So yeah going to start with Jai Kinkoi and the first question he asks is about uh, how to stand out. They're kind of two things and they're interconnected. I suppose you could say it's one thing in particular and it's a very big topic. Uh, It's something that to an extent requires a lot of uh, skill in terms of music production and a good strategy in terms of marketing strategy behind yourself which you can get other people to do uh the first thing i would recommend is to listen to episode uh six i believe with andrew apinov uh his episode you know that's all about marketing you'll learn a lot from that as well as the episode with uh birdie vault which is episode two listen to those for more advice uh but anyway how to stand up. The first thing you need to do is find your niche or niche, uh, as people in the US will say. Find your niche or sound. So uh, you can consciously work toward a certain niche or sound uh, that not many people are doing. Best way to do this is to combine one or more genres. Sounds cliche. But it works. So let's say you like uh, techno and electro. Combine elements from those two genres, work out how you can make something that sounds unique based off those two genres, and you've got your niche. Go narrow. Don't, if you want to stand out, don't try to make what everyone else is making. Simple advice. Not many people follow it. Second thing is to really work on your brand and image. This is super important and it also takes a lot of time. Uh, so this this kind of goes beyond pure music production. Some people have a very interesting persona uh, which makes him stand up. Take Deadmau5 for example. He's arrogant uh, but he makes people laugh, he's funny, and he's sometimes brutally honest, which is good. 
That's why people follow him. Yes, they follow him for his music, but also that. Uh, now, I don't suggest that you try to copy Dead Mouse and go out there and act like, you know, that you should be the uh, the critic of the dance music scene. No. But you should work out who you are and what your persona is and how you integrate that into your image. Okay, the second question also comes from Jai. Uh, and he asks about what about early releases and how they can affect your career down the track. Personally, I don't think it's a huge problem. Uh, I think that most of your fans expect that your earlier music isn't going to sound as good. So I wouldn't be too concerned about it. At the end of the day, if you really need to, you can just change your alias. That's what I did. If you look up my old alias on Beatport, you will find music that isn't great. Uh, and the third question also comes from Jai. And he says, how did uh, you, Levi, Nicholas and Aaron and Santos all meet each other? I can't speak for their relationships, but I can speak for how I met each of them. Uh, and this is kind of interesting, an interesting note that you can't really apply one model to networking with people. I view all these guys as my friends, uh, but we all met differently. So with Levi, uh, I worked on a remix for him, I think. It, it was actually a competition, so we didn't know each other. Uh, I never finished it. But anyway, I got in touch with him via Twitter, and it kind of went from there. Uh, with Nick, he joined the EDM prod group. I saw that he was from Melbourne. And I was going there for two weeks, so we caught up and had coffee and uh, had an awesome chat. And the rest is history. Uh, with Aaron, Aaron Lee, a friend of mine who isn't a producer, and he doesn't know Aaron, uh, showed me his music. And I got in touch with Aaron, and again, the rest is history. Santos got in touch with me asking if I wanted to uh, release or remix anything on his label, Amped Artists, and it kind of went from there. So it's not something you can really uh, plan. It happens very organically, meeting people. So uh, keep that in mind, but get out there and talk to people and uh, try to offer help. Levi asks two questions. First one is, what are your goat's names? <laughs> Uh, so if you don't get this basically um, I think it was episode you know, it was the first episode when we talked about presets there's this kind of meme that goes around about how a person uh, thought that making loops was cheating so he decided to program his own drums or own loops and then he decided to you know uh, make his own synthesizers and then he ends up goat farming because he wants to record uh, drums, but he wants to make his own drum skins as well. And so, yeah. Anyway, ends up goat farming, doesn't have time to make music. Uh, unfortunately, at the moment, I don't have any goats. I'm kind of try to, trying to lay off the goat farming. Um, I just don't have the time. But his serious question is, what do you think is the most untapped revenue source for producers and DJs. 
I'll speak for producers because um, I think it's one. I, th- I think you can make money from obviously from touring and a few other things, but it's not untapped. Where I think it's at, and I would love to see more people do this, is subscription models and websites like Patreon. I think if you follow the 1000 True Fans model, which is that you treat every fan like your friend and someone you know, and you actually take the time to talk to them, I think that you can easily, maybe not easily, I won't, <laughs> I won't say that, but you can absolutely uh, make money from a site like Patreon. So, for example, um, you could you could say that if someone gives you five dollars a month, uh, they get access to all your past releases uh, and every new release that's coming. If someone gives you ten dollars a month, they get access to behind the scenes stuff, and you go up in tiers. So you could offer things like one-on-one Skype lessons if they're a producer. Uh, you could give them samples or presets. Um, you know, all this kind of stuff. There's so many things you can do. I think Patreon is the way to go. So that I think that's one of the big untapped revenue sources. There are some people doing it. I think there should be more. I think that people are leaving money on the table. So that's what I think. Uh Next question comes from Anton. He says, I'd like to hear your opinion on releasing your music for free versus selling your music via labels or self-releasing. Here's the thing. It's very, it depends on a number of things. It depends, first of all, on the genre of music you make and the community surrounding it. Uh, So Santos and I talked about this, I think, in... um, it might have been episode four. Uh, but, you know, he was saying, and we both agreed, we both talked about it, that with the, say, the deep house or indie dance community, uh, or trap, trap is a good example. The trap community has a lot of free downloads. There's a lot of artists out there who release music for nothing. It gets uh, put on YouTube channels like Trap Nation, gets a lot of exposure and these people uh, benefit from it by touring and doing shows and their music is for the most part free. It works in that scene, with some of them it doesn't. So with the trance scene it's much more difficult to do that because it's still a, uh, the trance community is still largely centered around labels. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it has to be taken into account. So that's one thing it depends on. I think that, and this is just my personal opinion, I think more people will self-release in the future. And I I think you really have to ask why you want to release on the label. Uh, Because if you just want to release on the label to have your music on iTunes and Beatport... You don't need a label for that. You can do that yourself uh, through certain services. I think CD Baby is one. Not only, well, you might not save money, but you'll save back and forth and you don't need to sign contracts and so on. If you just want to release on a label to say you've released on a label, I understand that. I understand the, um, 
the the it's kind of like a vanity thing but i completely understand it i mean it's not i don't think it's a bad thing but you really have to ask why you want to release on a label compared to self-releasing where you will probably earn more money uh or releasing for free there are benefits to releasing on labels they do some of them have very good marketing that has to be taken into account as well i'm not uh bagging on labels i think some labels are awesome but i also think some labels don't really do much for people or for producers at all i think they should be avoided um so really think about why you're doing it and don't just don't just release on any old label for the sake of it Aaron Lund asks, what's your opinion on the analog versus digital debate? Uh, <laughs> and he says at the end, or maybe that can be a whole episode. Um, it's not something I think about. I really don't care. I'm convinced that most elitists who say that digital will never beat analog are actually deluded. Uh, I think that digital has come an incredibly long way. That said, I think there are benefits to using analog gear. One is the randomness that kind of comes from it, uh, especially with synthesizers, and also the fact that it's tangible, you can touch it. I think they're nice to experiment with. I also think hardware is incredibly expensive, and it's definitely not something that's going to um, fix creative problems or help you make better music. I really don't think that. It's not a debate I like to engage in, just because it's it's not fun. But I do think digital has come a long way, and I think it will uh, get to the point where it matches analog. And I know some people who would even say it has now. I don't know. Um, to me, I only work in the box. I don't have any hardware. I've never felt the need for it. Uh, but that's just me. Uh Nguyen asks, and I feel like I've pronounced it wrong, so please forgive me. Should I use reverb for my synth on only send or insert or both? Uh, it depends entirely on the application, oh, not application, uh, situation. The benefit to using it on a send track is that you can process your reverb separate from the synth. Uh, but, I mean, there are times where you need to add a specific type of reverb to a specific type of sound and you don't need to process that reverb uh, individually that's when I'd use it on an insert so the answer is both and it depends entirely on the situation if you were to choose one for whatever reason I would say use it on a, a send track you just have far more control the other benefit to using uh, effects on send tracks is that you can obviously send more than one instrument to it which saves CPU power Steve asks, uh, what kind of processor would you need to get a buffer size or latency small enough to perform synths live? I have no idea. I'm going to be honest. I can't answer that. Uh, but if someone can, <laughs> do, do leave a comment and I'll let Steve know. Uh, William asks, more tips on workflow, library, organization. And I'll, I'll answer that first. It's a big topic, so I don't want to go too in-depth. Uh, I did write a book on it, so I have to plug that in there. But anyway, there are a few kind of uh, key things that I think help with workflow. The first is, and I always say this, but have a clear objective with each, for each production session. 
I think that solves a lot of problems for producers. Uh, if you enter your door without a clear goal, you're likely to just muck around and not really do anything productive or make any progress on the track. If you enter your door and production session with a clear objective, for example, uh, complete the full arrangement or basic arrangement, that's what you're going to be working on. And you'll ignore anything, hopefully, that isn't important to that goal. That's the first tip. The second is to actually focus. Uh, Too many producers have Facebook open on another screen or they have their phone turned on and they're getting messages, uh, you know, every five minutes or I don't know. Uh, But you need to focus, make it your sole focus. Set a timer. I think that helps as well a lot. Uh, So, you know, it can be 30 minutes even if you don't have that much time. But set a timer and work until it's up. In terms of library organization, uh, it is a somewhat, you know, it comes down to preference. I like to organize my samples by, uh, by company. I don't think that's the most effective way to do it. I think the most effective way to do it is to organize by type. However, if you've got a lot of samples, it takes an incredibly long time to organize. So I, I organize by company and I organize my plugins by company as well. In terms of library organization, uh, basically I have, first of all, I have a Sam Matler folder, which is all the projects that go into my name that are supposed to be finished and released. And then I have an ideas folder, which basically contains, well, ideas, tracks that or projects that aren't really developed uh, that I can use and turn into full tracks. These are organized by date normally. They don't have titles. Uh, uh, The second question that William asked was, I would like to know how deep labels investigate your resources. He's talking about software your resources licenses before signing you to the most of my knowledge they don't uh they will obviously look at whether you've sampled something from elsewhere because they don't want to get in legal trouble but uh, that is if your song has a recognizable sample or seems like it does but i don't think they look at whether you have cracked your software or not and i in brackets he's put can i sell Basically, can I sell beats on Crack Software? Sell beats I wrote on Crack Software. Look, I I don't really agree with using Crack Software. I know that most people start off using it. Uh, it's not something I endorse on EDM Prod. Um, I don't think it's ethically right to be selling music you wrote on software that you don't legally own. That's just my opinion. I hope that others would agree with me. But no, labels won't really investigate your resources license. That doesn't mean you should be doing it though. Uh, Tamir asks, uh, he asks seven questions in total. So I'll try to answer these as quickly as possible. The first one is, do you automate low slash high pass filters on synth slash drum groups or individually on specific tracks? Uh, both, depending on what I feel like doing there's no rule there the second question is do you mix in mono before panning 
No, I don't because uh, in some respects, panning comes as part of the creative process. It's something that I do normally as I go uh, and will adjust in the final mix. I always check my mix in mono, but I've kind of moved away from starting by mixing in mono, which I used to do. Kind of moved away from that. Third question, how do you usually mix bass sounds to get them sounding warm and crisp? Compression, EQ, amps, distortion. Uh, I don't do a huge amount of processing other than compression. I would rather use a a pre-distorted layer um, to add, you know, a, a bit of Christmas to the, uh, not Christmas, crispness to the sound instead of adding distortion to, you know, say one layer. So I like to use layers to get the characteristic I want rather than post pro rather than processing outside of the synth um i normally compress layers together with ableton's glue compressor and yeah that's that's about it can you give me some examples of when and how you would use plugins like amps distortion bit crushing and saturation there there are too many examples to name but i don't use amps very often um, I probably should use them a bit more. I think they're great. Distortion I use on a lot of things. I think distortion, uh, you know, distortion and saturation and bit crushing, they're all types of distortion, bit crushing and saturation. So I'll talk about the two. Bit crushing I like to use as an effect. I normally automate it or I use it on things like percussion or vocal chops to give them a certain characteristic. Saturation is great to act in as a limiter. Uh, so I like to put saturation on things, first of all, that have um, very loud transients that cause issues in the mix. And I also like to use it to obviously warm things up. So I'll often use saturation on uh, bass lines and plucks and also leads, I think, uh, Slight set or heavy saturation can work on the high end of, say, a super saw really well. What are the most essential and underrated mixing tips every new producer should know? Use reference tracks. You have to use reference tracks. Especially as a new producer, your ears just aren't good enough to know where things should sit in the mix. So you need to use a reference track and listen to where that producer has placed things in the mix. Second thing is do not underestimate uh, the faders. Most people jump to using compression or EQ or this effect or that effect. It all starts with your faders. Uh, so get you should be able to get a decent sounding mix with only your faders. Uh, also read Mike Senior's Mixing Secrets for the Small Studio. That'll teach you more than I can in this podcast. And he asked another question which I've answered. It's about using a reverb bus or applying it individually. And his final question is when you're at the beginning stage of creating a track, what do you start with? What sets you in the direction for how the track will sound? Chords or drums or anything else? At the moment, uh, it actually depends. Uh, I, I don't have a set in stone workflow. I think that it's good to experiment as much as possible, especially during the early stages of a track. Why? 
because experimentation is in essence creativity and if you have a predefined I think a predefined workflow is good but if you have it initially i.e I start with a kick drum then I make a bass line then I make a hi-hat whatever if you do that every time you are kind of limiting yourself creatively so you know it, it, it varies a lot these days I like to start with the composition more and more so I'll start with a piano and lay down the chords the melody and the bass line just with the piano and then uh, choose some sounds Bradley asks when is a good time to start focusing on marketing your music and he adds some context he says I want to grow as an artist eventually but I never feel completely happy with the quality of my music so I don't release it uh it's a an interesting question and it's been answered way better than I can can answer it uh, by Andrew in episode six it's one of the first questions I ask actually maybe the second or third but anyway it's, it's early on I sit on the fence after hearing what Andrew had to say about it I think initially if you lack skill and your music is you know like if you've been producing for under a year <coughs> your time is better spent developing your skills rather than marketing after that it can pay to start working on marketing because like Andrew said it takes a while to learn these marketing concepts if I was to um, give you a definitive answer I would say start now because you can't really do much harm the only thing you can do is waste a bit of time but you won't be wasting time because you've been learning a question from Gordon who says how to get your leveling uh, tighter slash preciser I'm going to assume he means leveling as in faders or levels of each channel or track there are a few things you can do one of them is to gain stage properly so that means to the extent of my knowledge and what I've read trying to get each fader as close to uh, oh you know I forgot the word close to 0 dB as possible the reason for that is because it's easier to get a precise um, it's more precise near the top of the fader length the way you can do that is adjusting gain on your synths and any effects you have after your synth or sound source before going into your fader that's one thing the second is uh, to I suppose this isn't fully related to your question but when you're mixing and you're getting your fader levels right one trick I like to do is pull the fader up so it's too loud and then slowly move it down until you hit the sweet spot that works quite well you can also do the, the pink noise mixing technique I haven't actually tried it but some people like it Abdu asks he asks two questions uh, the first oh actually three questions oh, the first is Lander Lander is basically a automated mastering service he says it seems like a very affordable and quality tool for mastering good or bad in your opinion I haven't tried it I think it's not a, I don't think it's a substitute for a mastering engineer give it a go see what it's like Nicholas has a very good answer to that uh, he left it in a comment on an article if you go to edmprod.com slash mastering 
I believe you'll find it there at the bottom of the article. Um, so he gives a good answer there if you want to check it out. And he's a professional mastering engineer, so he'd give you a better, more informed answer than I will. Mixing, what are the best ways to learn mixing nowadays? Can you recommend resources? Yes, I can recommend one resource that I've had great feedback for. Uh, recommending, it's not mine, I didn't make it. It's called Mixing EDM. It's a course by Matthew Weiss uh, and it's fantastic. It's it's It covers all the bases. You know, he goes through a full track. Um, so it's really fun to watch. That's one thing I recommend. And if you want to, you can either go to mixingedm.com and buy it there. It's about $67 US. Or if you want to support EDM Prod, you can go to edmprod.com slash mixingedm and uh, I'll get some commission, but it won't cost any more. Also, uh, check out Mixing Secrets for the Small Studio by Mike Senior. I've already recommended it in this episode. Great book. The next question he, he asks is about school. He says, I'm planning to attend university next year. Should I go all in and study what I love by entering a music production slash technology program, which doesn't guarantee any job in the music industry? Or should I go the safe route and study business while working on my craft on the side? I have my own reserved opinions about music production schools, as in physical schools. I think some of them are great. I think like the places like Icon Collective, Point Blank, are awesome. The tertiary, like official tertiary programs like SAE, um, I think are depend depending on who teaches it. I don't know if they're worth the cost, but I haven't been to one so. You know, someone else would probably disagree with me there. You know, it's not it's not a question that I can really answer, and in some respects, I don't want to answer it because you know I don't want to say one thing or the other, and then five years down the track, you come back and you say, "Sam, you screwed my life up. Um, I studied music and now I can't get a job, and I should have studied business because my friend studied business and now he's making a hundred grand a year." I don't really want to give an answer. I don't think you need to go to music production school to learn though. That's all I'll say. But if it's a good school, sure. And by the way, no one's guaranteed a job in the music industry. You really have to work for that. Um, In fact, if you want to take this to a higher level, no one's really guaranteed a job in anything. So I feel like that, um, that note there is kind of a given. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't try hard. Okay, so that concludes this episode. At, I don't think there are any more questions. No. Uh, hopefully that wasn't too boring. Uh, like I said, I was winging it. So there are probably a few answers in there which weren't fantastic. But hopefully you got some value out of it. Uh, and we'll do this again at some point. If you have any comments or further questions... Just leave them on the on SoundCloud or nah, tweet me at edmprod or email me sam at edmprod.com and I'll get back to you. Have a great rest of your week and have fun producing. <laughs>